The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We've gathered today, Father, because we hunger to know you. We, we desire to be changed by you. We want to walk with you. So we worship you. We come and worship with expectant hearts, knowing the power of your word to change lives because you changed ours. And so we gaze on you this day. Teach us. Teach us more each day to focus our heart's attention on you. And forgive us, Lord, for allowing all the things of the world to be the focus of our attention. Forgive us for focusing our attention on politics or focusing our attention on on, um, the latest news or focusing our attention on something that distracts us from you. We come here finding it hard to gaze on you. And I don't know why many of us have done this all our lives for many, many years, and yet it's still a challenge. It's a work in us. We're blinded by sin in our lives. We're we're blinded by problems that we might have at work or family difficulties or relationship problems or physical problems or emotional problems or spiritual problems. We're simply blinded by those things, Lord. And it might be easier for us here in worship to give our heart's attention to you, but tomorrow it's going to be hard. So change us. By the power of your Spirit, change our lives today. Give us faith to see beyond the darkness of this world and the darkness of our lives even. We thank you for your church. We thank you, Lord, for caring for this body, for encouraging us to care for the body. We know there are some out there sick, some in the hospital. We know there are some that are homebound, can't get out. We know there's some traveling summertime and I'm on vacation, so we just pray that you would provide for each of them and care for them. Help them even today to know your presence. We pray for our community, Lord. We all drove out of neighborhoods or drove down the street, past so many homes of people who are lost and don't know you, and Our impact is minimal unless you give us boldness. Give us a desire to change our community for you. Convict us to care for those who need your care and a loving touch from you. We lift up our church leaders, our teachers, those who are caring for the children in the back even now. Pray your blessings on their lives. Lead us, Lord, in the direction you would have us to go. And we know that the, the, the primary focus of that direction is centered on the Word of God. And so make your Word real and alive to us today. Speak through our pastors. He preaches your Word directly to our hearts so that we might leave this place a changed people. 
And for that, we give you all the glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I would invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. I don't know about you, but I like music. You like music? What kind of music do you like? Yeah, or... I love people who have the guts who stand for their convictions out loud. Thank you, Charlene. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love all kinds of music. Do you like lots of different kinds of music, or are you one of those folks who just kind of has a little slice, that's what you like, and that's what you listen to? I like all sorts of music. If you were to go into my iTunes on my computer or on my phone or on my iPad or something, you'd find all sorts of things, maybe some things that you would expect, probably some things you would not expect because you have a particular image of me and that may ruin it for some of you. Um, Oh my! In my collection are lots of things that I like. I, the bulk of it is various genres and eras of Christian music. That's my steady diet for the most part. But I like all sorts of different kinds of Christian music. Everything from from old organ and choral music from centuries ago uh, to modern Christian songs that are coming out in in these years in which we live. Uh, some that are more classical in their feel, some that are more uh, modern and rock and rollish, some that are jazzy. I, I like, I really can enjoy them all. You would find uh, things outside of the Christian genre that, that would tell you a little bit about my life coming up, probably the things that I uh, can enjoy. I've got James Taylor. Do you like James Taylor? I like James Taylor. He's soothing. I listen to him on the airplane, and it puts me right to sleep in a good mood. I like that. I've got Johnny Cash. Who likes Johnny Cash? Come on. You've you got to walk the line, right? And fall into the ring of fire. You can't help it. Yeah, it just makes your toe tap and you can see him and it's all black. I've got some old school rock and roll from the 80s, some Van Halen and all sort of godless sinners, but they make some interesting music that just takes me back to my younger years. I, I like them all. I like all sorts of things. You'd be surprised at the variety. There's island music that sometimes I, I'm in the mood to just hear some island music because it's happy and I'm down and it just cheers me up. I like just about, I can enjoy just about any kind of music. Well, I don't like rap. Besides rap, I can enjoy just about any kind of music. And maybe not so much country. Um, sorry to offend you if you love country country music. I have a little bit of that, but, but it's not my favorite. And the modern hybrid between the two, country and rap, have you heard any of that? There's a name for it. It's called crap. You don't want to hear it. It's awful. Country and rap. You know that. But music is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Music really is a beautiful thing. There's music from all sorts of genres that fall under that heading as well, by the way. But music is a, a very personal thing as well. Probably what you like doesn't line up with exactly what I enjoy. And probably the things that I have in my collection wouldn't all really push your buttons either. Uh, but music is, is, is a personal preference matter for so many of us. And we can enjoy all sorts of different things in a good and holy sort of a way. But there is some music that stands above all other music. There is some music that is the height of music because it is divinely written and divinely inspired. And we find those songs right smack dab in the middle of our Bibles when you open up to the middle and you, your Bible flops open to the Psalms. You find there a songbook of songs written by the Spirit of God Himself, intended to be read and sung, perhaps, all throughout the ages forevermore. The history of music in our culture is dotted with all sorts of people whose names you don't remember. People who had one-hit wonders, who you liked at one point, but you never heard from them again, unless you listen to the oldie station. I do that sometimes, too. But there's some music that just endures, that's meant to endure, because it's holy music that conveys a holy message and that's what we find when we drop our noses into the Psalms. We find music that isn't just a matter of personal preference. We find God's music, if you will. And so that's why we're taking these, these weeks to, 
sort of parachute in and out of different psalms and to together look into God's hymn book and to get beyond whatever our personal musical preferences are and listen to what it is that God has to say to us through his songs. And we've been doing that for a few weeks now. And we've looked at some different sort of songs. We've looked at some different kinds of songs that give us different kinds of messages. And so this morning I've chosen Psalm 22 because it's a completely different genre of psalm from the others that we've been studying. And as we work our way through this series, I hope that we will sort of give you an overview of the various kinds of psalms. They're not all the same. They're all quite different. And they fall in various categories. The psalm we look at this morning, Psalm 22, is a prophetic psalm. It's one of the psalms that fits under the general heading of prophecy. It's a psalm that has meaning in its own day, but has an expanded and even more far-reaching meaning into our day and well beyond. And so this morning we look at Psalm 22 and we see the salvation and the silence of God. Also the sovereignty, as you see on your screen. The psalm begins in verse 1 by simply giving us an introduction from the psalmist. We've seen this pattern on a few occasions now. Simply saying to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. A few things were told here. It's a song written to the choir master, uh, assuming that he's going to teach it to the choir and it's going to be sung. We're told it's a psalm of, of whom? Of David, a psalm written by David. We've, we've seen other psalms of David up to this point, and David is the, the majority author of the psalms, although there are many psalms written by others. You're familiar with David, and this is one of his psalms. We're told also uh, that it's according to the Doe of the Dawn. We don't know exactly what the Doe of the Dawn is. We assume that it's some sort of a tune that would have been familiar to the choir master, to which these lyrics were intended to be sung. But this is a psalm of David. And it's one of many written by him. What's interesting is as we read through this psalm, we, have a, we go back into the history of David's life that we know, what's recorded in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is we don't find any events in the life of David that seem to match up with the words of this psalm. We, we can look at all of the things that we know about him, all that's recorded in Holy Scripture about his life, and there's nothing that we see historically about David, any events that we can identify that would seem to fit the description that David gives in the psalm. And so, what does that leave us with? That leaves us with a couple of things. It leaves us with the reality that what David is writing here is at least to some extent hyperbole. And what I mean by hyperbole, if you don't know, if you don't use that word, I don't use it all the time. It's just a word that simply means it's an exaggeration meant to make a point. And you, that makes sense, right? When I say an exaggeration meant to make a point. So David here, perhaps, is reflecting on an experience in his life or is going through some experience in his life that doesn't exactly align with the words that he's written. But these words are, are an exaggerated version of what he's going through. In other words, it's not exactly what he's experiencing, but it's what he feels like he's experiencing. Do you know, you know how that works? Sometimes you're going through something and it feels... A hundred degrees worse than what it actually is. Maybe that's what we're looking at here. Maybe there's some event that we do know of of David's life that we're just seeing the inner workings of his heart. And in his mind, it's so much worse than what the history records. Or perhaps it's another event in his life or another season in his life for which we have no recorded scriptural history. And that's possible as well. But whatever the case, we're told that he's the author. He's the one who sat down and penned these words. But you need to know at the outshoot, and if you've read ahead of me to verse 1 already, you know that this is not a psalm that is only about David and his life. It is a psalm, in fact, about the Lord Jesus Christ and about his crucifixion. This is a prophetic psalm. Maybe if you were here when we went through the minor prophets or the selected minor prophets some number of years ago, we talked about how prophecy works, that oftentimes when prophets speak, there is some sort of an initial meaning or some sort of an initial fulfillment that takes place in the life and culture of the prophet. 
But then, unbeknownst to the prophet, more often than not, there is a, a greater fulfillment, a greater set of events that is way down the timeline of history that is known by the Spirit of God because he knows all things, right? And so through the psalmist or through the prophet, he writes down or he causes them, has him to write down things that speak of things that are many, many, many years down the road. And so there is often in prophecy an initial meaning or an initial fulfillment. And there is later down the road a much fuller, a much broader, more complete fulfillment of that prophecy that is best seen in retrospect. Does that make sense? This is not uncommon in prophecy, and so it's not uncommon for us to find it here in this prophetic psalm. This is a psalm about David, but it's a psalm about Jesus. And it's an important psalm. It is unmistakable that this is prophecy concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. When we look to the New Testament, this psalm is referred to over 24 times that three of the four direct quotations of this psalm in the New Testament occur during the passion and crucifixion of Jesus. Fourteen of the remaining twenty sort of allusions or parallels to this psalm all also sort of come out of the passion and crucifixion narratives. So it's clear that the New Testament writers and the New Testament church understood this psalm to be prophetic and to be in many ways fulfilled in the events surrounding the arrest and crucifixion and death of Jesus. In fact, what we find here is the most clear and full description of the crucifixion of Christ that we find anywhere else in Scripture. It's fascinating to me that the clearest description of the crucifixion we find in all of the Bible is found in the Old Testament book of Psalms a thousand years before any of these events ever took place. That is, in my view, irrefutable proof of the Holy Spirit-breathed inspiration of the Scriptures. There's no other explanation for it. When we look back in retrospect and we see how the pen of David chronicled for us the details of the cross over a thousand years before it ever happened, details that weren't even recorded by the eyewitnesses, we stand amazed, don't we? Only God could do that. Only God could cause a man a thousand years separated from events to be able to, in his mind, see those events and write them, only to have them occur a millennia later. Millennium later. And that's what we have here in this psalm. It is, in fact, the crucifixion of Jesus through Jesus' eyes. None of the gospel writers could give us that. Only God could give us that. And he has in Psalm 22 of all places. And so we turn our attention to this psalm this morning. And I'm going to move quickly because, honestly, there's 31 verses. And you know what that means, right? This is an impossible task in one sermon to detail every phrase and every verse. So what I want to do is give you the fly-by overview and give you the framework and pull out the things that are absolutely critical for us to see and then challenge you to take it home and unpack it even further on your own. This psalm breaks into really two distinct pieces. Verses 1 through 21 is the first piece, and then verses 22 through 31 are the, is the second piece. Really, a, a clean, hard break takes place at the end of 21. And what I want to do this morning is I want to separate this in sort of a four-point sermon. I want to kind of give that to you right here at the outset. We're going to look first at the first piece, the psalmist wail. Then we're going to look at the psalmist worship. That's verses 1 through 21 and then verses 22 through the end. And then we're going to transition over and look at the Savior's wail and the Savior's worship. Also, those same verses. Because what we have here is Holy Spirit-inspired meaning running along two rails of a railroad track at the same time. One of the things that frustrated me in studying this passage and reading many commentators is that many of them focused only on the application of this text to the crucifixion. And that's frustrating to me because this text existed in the form of Scripture for a very long time before the crucifixion. And it clearly had meaning and value on its own prior to that. And I think as we work our way through it, you'll 
perhaps see it. I, I pray by the help of God's Spirit we'll see it together. It had meaning to David. It had meaning to the people that sang it in David's culture. And so I want to look at that through David's eyes in the first two pieces. And then I want to look at the same thing through Jesus' eyes in the second two pieces. And stand back, I pray, and be amazed at what we see. uh, Both in how God has inspired his word and what our Savior has done for us. Let me just read verses 1 through 21 and give you a sense for the psalmist's wail. And by the way, if you have a Bible, you may want to follow along this morning. There was a bunch of texts, and I didn't put them all uh, up on the screens for you this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There are some in the chairs underneath in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those and follow along. Psalm 22 says this, David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted you, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Note here the tone change. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he's not hidden his face from him, but he's heard him when he cried. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I'll perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. It's the end of the psalm. We see in that first section, verses 1 through 21, really the wail of a psalmist. And I use the word wail because it seems to me that's exactly what this psalmist is doing in verses 1 through 21. Many commentators use the the terms prayer or cry or complaint. But to me, those words don't even begin to do justice to the way this man is speaking. He's not just praying. 
He's not just complaining. He's not even just crying. It seems to me that he is literally wailing. I also use this term because I think the text supports it or suggests it. In verse 1, the second part, he says, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Words of my groaning. That word groaning can be translated roaring, screaming, even bawling. This is no simple cry. This is no simple complaint. As, you, as you'll see when we work through this, this is a man who is at the very end of his rope, and he is wailing out for help. He is a desperate, desperate man who feels like he's about to go under. You say, well, what's, so, what's, so, what's the problem? What's going so wrong in this guy's life? What's David so upset about here that's gotten to the point where he's at the end of his rope and he's about to go under and he's literally wailing through his pen as a reflection of what's going on in his heart? Well, as we pluck our way through the text, we see his immediate circumstances are pretty dreadful. Look at him with me. Just kind of put him in categories. It looks to be, at the very beginning, like he's got a lot of problems. One is he's surrounded by enemies. Did you pick up on that as we read our way through it? Verse 11, he says, trouble is near. And in verse 12, he says, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open, verse 13, their, wide their mouths at me like ravening, roaring lion. Dogs, verse 16, he says, encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. All of that is language that describes a man who feels as though he's completely surrounded by his enemies. Everywhere he looks, he's surrounded by people who hate him and despise him and want to destroy him. This language uh, is not so clear to us. When you hear bulls of Bashan, I'm sure that means absolutely nothing to you. Except you know what a bull is, right? In David's day, bulls of Bashan. Bashan was a, was a particular location where they had large and fertile uh, grazing grounds that were unusual. And because they were large and fertile grazing grounds, the cattle, the bulls that lived on them were unusually large and healthy. They were also known for being incredibly aggressive. It was said that any sort of unusual thing in the pasture, the bulls would circle around it and wait for any movement. And any little movement would cause them to, to charge with their horns and attack. And so that gives a vivid description of what David feels like. He, he's surrounded by bulls who have horns. They're just waiting for the moment for him to move so that they can gore him to death. He speaks of ravenous lions roaring at him. Bulls that are about to attack. Lions that are about to, to eat him and devour him. And he says, dogs encompass me. This is not your, your pet chihuahua he's talking about here. He's talking about wild packs of rabid dogs. Pack animals that are ready to pounce and feast on his carcass at any given moment. David is saying, I look in every direction, and all I see are people who hate me, people who want to destroy me, who want to gore me, devour me, who want to see me destroyed utterly. He feels completely surrounded. There is no way in his eyes of escape. He's completely pinned in by enemies. It's a bad problem. It's a really bad problem. But that's not all of his problem. We find out not only is he surrounded by enemies and not only is he barely hanging on to be able to fight them off, but in the midst of all that, if that isn't bad enough, verses 6 through 8 tell us he's being mocked by the people who are watching all this. The people who see his situation, instead of helping him, they're mocking him. Look at this verse 6 through 8. Despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. Can you, can you imagine that? Make mouths, but look at him. They wag their heads. Look at that guy. Look at him. Look at old David over there. Isn't he a pitiful mess? They wag their heads. They make mouths at him. What are the things they say? It's not just that they mock. It's it's bad enough to be in trouble and have people mock you, right? Because of your trouble. 
But if that isn't bad enough, they're not just mocking him because of his trouble. They're mocking him because of his faith in the midst of his trouble. Do you see that? What are they saying when they make mouths and wag their heads? He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Oh, he's a, he's a godly man, isn't he? If God loves him so much, then let God deliver him. It's a mockery of his faith. They're making fun of him for trusting in God. Oh, you trust in God. Doesn't look like God's delivering for you today, does it? Buddy, you're in pretty bad shape. You're about to go under. There's no hope for you. And you think God's going to rescue you? Good luck with that. Everyone looking on despises him. He looks in every direction and he sees no friends anywhere. Just people mocking him. Where's your God now? He's physically reached his limits. We see that in verses 14, 15, 17. He says things like, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. I can count all my bones. I mean, it's a vivid description of a man who is in physical agony, right? I mean, I'm poured out like water. What is he saying? He's just saying, I'm completely drained of my physical resources. And no strength left. It's a picture of a man who is fighting for dear life, and inside he knows that his physical endurance and his strength is about to give out. And he knows when it does, he's done. Strength dried up. He's, his thirst is thickening. He can count all his bones. He's, he's in pain, physical pain. He's physically, completely spent. He is surrounded. He's running out of strength to fight off the attackers. And he knows he is about to die. But it's not just that. He's got more problems. He's emotionally reached his limit too. He says, my heart is like what? It's like wax. It's melted inside of me. His heart is not steadfast. He's not a guy who's saying, all right, I'm, I'm weak on the outside, but I'm strong on the inside. Me and God, we got this. No. On the inside, his heart is melted. It's melted. He is emotionally on the inside a mess. Not only is his physical strength gone, but his emotional stamina is gone as well. He's emotionally wiped out. He says in verse 6, I am a worm, I'm not even a man. He's in such bad shape physically and emotionally that he feels subhuman. I'm a worthless insect. That's how he feels. He is literally at rock bottom. Rock bottom. And to add insult to injury, he's got another problem. He feels completely alone. Verse 11, he says, trouble is near and there is no one to help. It's bad enough to be surrounded by people who hate you. It's bad enough to have to endure mockery of people when you're hurting and in pain. It's bad enough to have them mock your faith in the middle of your pain. It's bad enough to be physically wiped out and feel like you can't go on. It's bad enough to be emotionally at rock bottom and feel subhuman. But to endure all those things and feel like there's not a single person in the world who cares about me. There's nobody that can help. It's devastating. It's devastating. I wonder, have you ever felt similar things? Have there ever been seasons in your life where the circumstances and the waves of circumstances were just crashing in on you and you looked around and all you saw was trouble and you felt emotionally like you were at your end? And you felt physically like you simply cannot fight anymore. And you look around and all you see is people who aren't interested in helping. You can't find anybody to come alongside you and encourage you and help pick you up and give you strength. If you've ever felt like that, you're in great company. That's exactly how David felt. A man after God's own heart. When he penned this psalm. He was at the end. All of his resources that come with his humanity were pushed to the edge. 
and he was all alone. Listen, if that's how you feel this morning, you're not by yourself. You're not by yourself. It is the experience of many, many believers throughout the history of God's church. It feels sometimes like we're all alone. It feels sometimes like there's no one to help. It feels sometimes like we can't go on to the next day. But that's just our feelings. It's not the reality, as we'll see. That wasn't all of David's complaint. That wasn't all of the reason why he's wailing this psalm. He's got one problem in his mind that's worse than all those problems we just looked at. And it's the first one he gives us in verse 1. And it's this. In the midst of all this going on in his life, he's crying out to God. And all he hears in response is silence. Silence. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. I cry by day, but you don't answer. It's one thing to have life's circumstances crash in around you and everything on a human level go wrong. It's another thing altogether to look up to the only one that you have any hope in and hear nothing but dead silence in response. And that's why this man is wailing this psalm. Because life is excruciating and he has been crying out to God and what he feels is that God has forsaken him. That God is far, far away from him. That God is not inclined to answer anything that he's asking of him. I suspect he's even wondering if God is even paying attention or listening. You ever been there? You ever been so low that everything's going wrong and your only hope is God and you're crying out to God and yet it seems that all you get is the ceiling and just dead air? It seems like God is so distant. It feels like He isn't listening because He isn't acting in the way that you feel He needs to act in that particular moment. That's where David is when he wails this psalm. He cannot simply understand why his God would allow him to endure this and not help. He can't understand. He wants to know why. Why, God? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Why, when I cry, don't you come help me? It's a bad situation, isn't it? And I suspect maybe some of us can can identify with that moment in David's life. I suspect maybe some of us know what it's like to cry out to God and just feel like he isn't listening. That's how David felt. What does a man do when he's in that situation? What does a woman do when she's at the end and her only hope she feels is so far away and disinterested? We have two choices. We can give in or we can fight. Psalmist David chooses to fight. You say he fights. Well, how does he fight? How does he respond in the middle of that kind of pain and that kind of situation? Well, let me give you four ways he fights. The first is he remembers God's character. He remembers God's character. Verse 3. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. He remembers that God is holy. He says to himself, self, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You think God isn't listening. You think God isn't acting. You think God isn't doing what He ought to be doing in light of your circumstances. But wait a minute. He is holy. He is righteous. What that means is He always does what is right. God, you're holy. He remembers that God always acts in ways that are perfect, that are righteous. And even though he can't see at the moment how that could possibly be the case, he fights back against what's going on inside of him. Wait a minute, self, you feel abandoned by God, but God always does what is right. And right now, somehow, he's doing what's right, even though you can't see it. He begins to fight back. 
even in this pain, God is righteous and He's holy and He's doing what's good. The second thing He does is He remembers God's track record among His people. He says, In you our fathers trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. He says, Wait a minute, wait a minute, self. Remember the history of God and His people. Time and time again, when God's people have been in desperate situations, they've cried out to Him, and what has He done? Tell me. I know you're awake if you tell me. He's delivered them. He's rescued them. Think Red Sea, right? Think even in David's own life. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. God, you, you, you have a track record of, of delivering your people. Wait a minute, self. God hasn't abandoned me. He doesn't abandon His people. He's never abandoned His people. He can't be abandoning me right now. See, He's fighting back. He's fighting back. He does something else. He remembers God's track record in His own life. Verses 9 through 10. You, you are He who took me from, my, from the womb. He pictures God as a midwife who's literally taking Him from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You've been my God. He's saying, God, wait a minute. Self, look at your track record of your history with God. From the very beginning of your life, from your birth, He's been your God. And He's been with you. And He's been there to help you. And David could probably reflect on his own life, right? You remember a day when he was a young man and stood before a giant Goliath? Do you remember that? A pretty hopeless looking situation. At least everybody else in the army thought so. But God delivered him. And so David is fighting back, right? He's fighting back. Wait a minute, self. God can't possibly be abandoning me. It's just not who he is. He's never done that in the history of his people. And he's never done it in my own history. He's saying to himself these things. And then he does a fourth thing. He refuses to give up on God. He just refuses to give up. He keeps on praying. He keeps on pleading as the song goes through. And in the midst of all this wailing, he just keeps on Reaching out to God. He keeps on petitioning. He realizes that God doesn't work on his timetable. And even though he doesn't get quick answers, and even though he doesn't get quick deliverance, he continues running toward God. Verse 11 and 19, he's saying, God, don't be far off. God, come close. Verse 19, come quickly to my aid. Verse 20, deliver my soul. Verse 21, save me. Do you see it? All throughout, he keeps running after God. God, I don't see you. I don't feel you. You're not acting in the way I want you to act. I don't feel like you're close. I don't feel like you're listening. But I'm going to keep going after you. I'm not going to quit. There's a temptation, isn't there, when life goes sour and we pray a few times and we don't get what we think God ought to do, that we just want to shut down, right? And give in to our feelings and give in to our emotions and give in to our sorrow and give in to our grief and begin to wallow in our own pity. And we find God, you've abandoned me, I'll abandon you. That's not what David does. He keeps after it. He doesn't give up on God. He keeps praying. He keeps asking him, God, help me. God, come near. God, save me. God, deliver me. And then something happens. In verse 21, we see this. A turning point arrives. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Now, this is the ESV translation. It doesn't doesn't give us the full picture of the turning point here. James Boyce gives a better translation that I think is really accurate and really helps us to see what verse 21 is saying to us. This phrase that the ESV translates, you have rescued me, can also be translated, you have heard me. So a a literal rendition, and it's also saved for the end of the verse. So a literal rendition of this verse would look something like this. Rescue me from the mouth of lions, from the horns of the wild oxen, period. And then what? You've heard me. You've heard me. This is a turning point because what has David's major complaint and problem been this whole way through? He's hurting and he's at the end. And what? God isn't listening. We don't know what happens in David's heart. We, don't, we get no details about the circumstances. All we know is that in some way, in some shape, in some form, the God of all creation to whom David has been wailing towards, and that man's heart lets him know, David, I'm here. 
have gone nowhere. I hear you. I hear you. I'm listening. And I'm in your corner for you. And all of a sudden, this whole wailing psalm turns on its head. All of a sudden, this man who is so desperate realizes and knows God isn't distant. He's close. I felt like he was far away, but in reality, he was closer than I could have ever imagined. I felt like he wasn't listening because he wasn't acting the way that I wanted him to act. But the reality is, he's heard me. He hears me. This, is, this first section does not end with a cry of despair. It ends with a cry of triumph. And the whole psalm turns on its head. The whole rest of this psalm, the second half, verses 22 through 31, is, is David literally blasting out in worship because God has made himself known to him. It's David saying, God, you've heard me. That changes everything. No longer am I going to be in despair. No longer am I going to be wailing out. He turns and he says, I'll praise you. Isn't that what he says in verse 21? If I was on that right page, I'd tell you. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. I mean, worship erupts from this man's heart simply at the reality that his God is listening and has heard him. It doesn't say that God has fixed his situation. It just simply says God has heard him and he knows God is holy, He has a track record, and He's heard me, and He's for me. I will worship Him. It makes all the difference. He busts out in worship, verse 22, I'll tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. And then he, verses 23 through 24, he calls other people to join him. Hey, all you who fear the Lord, praise Him, glorify Him, stand in awe of Him. Why should they do that? The end of verse 24, because He has heard the afflicted when He cried to Him. It's worth worshiping God when we realize that in our deep affliction, He hears us and does not abandon us. That was what David needed to know. And he busts out in worship. And he calls everybody who will listen to him to join him in worshiping because God doesn't abandon His people in their distress. Because God hears His people when they cry. And then the rest of this part through the lens of David, is David envisioning a future when everyone will worship God and all of the world will be ruled by God under His sovereignty. It's a, an eschatological view of the future. David, if you will, is looking down through time and he's saying, listen, God, I have such confidence in you. I can Not only can I see beyond the circle of enemies now, but I can see all the way to the end of history when you are going to ultimately fulfill the promise you made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 when you said to him, through you I will bless all the nations. David begins through his worship to, to talk about that and what that would look like at the end of this psalm. David looks into the future. This is a man who, at the beginning of this psalm, couldn't see past the next hour. Do you get that? And it all turned. And by the end of the psalm, he's looking into the future. And he sees the ultimate rule and reign of his God over all people everywhere. It's amazing what one simple truth will do to a heart that's in despair. God is heard. And it makes all the difference. Not only was God sufficient for His present, but He was sufficient for the future. And anything else that would come His way. David was a man who was wailing, but he was a man who was worshiping. But as I told you, this isn't all about David. There's a lot that we can learn through David's eyes, right? We can learn how to battle against despair. We can learn how to battle against discouragement and depression. We can learn how to battle against our own thoughts and our own feelings when our thoughts and feelings turn against us and cause us to begin to doubt our God. And we can see a light through the midst of that darkness as David did and as the people who sang this psalm for generations did. But there's so much more in this psalm than that. Because it's not just a psalm about David. It's a psalm about Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe. We can look at this thing the same way we looked at it through David. 
we see in this psalm a vivid description of the crucifixion of Jesus that is unmistakable and irrefutable. Just like David, the Lord Jesus was too surrounded by enemies, wasn't he? Do you remember the events surrounding the arrest and crucifixion of our Lord? Do you remember how in the Garden of Gethsemane there was a a posse that came out and arrested the Lord Jesus, drug Him away, and put Him on a mock trial? Do you remember what that looked like? Do you remember Him being surrounded by enemies on all sides? Do you remember the religious leaders around Him accusing Him? Lying about him? Do you remember the crowd surrounding him and screaming and yelling and wanting him dead? Matthew records it for us in Matthew 27, verse 20 and following. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, They all said, Let him be crucified! They said, What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified! Verse 25, All the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released them for Barabbas, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I imagine through the eyes of Jesus on that day, it felt like being surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, being surrounded by roaring lions, an angry pack of dogs who want nothing more than to tear you to shreds. Because that was the reality. It was exactly what Jesus experienced. And through his eyes, it must have seemed like he was surrounded, completely surrounded by people who hated him and wanted him destroyed. It's not just the religious leaders and the crowds. It's the satanic hosts that gathered at that event as well. Satan is described as a roaring what? Lion. It's not just as though the crowds wanted him destroyed, but the whole array of satanic hosts, no doubt, were present on that day. And he could see what no one else could see. More bulls, more dogs, more lions, far more deadly. He too was mocked by onlookers, wasn't he? Verse 39, and those who passed by derided him. And what did they do? They were wagging their heads. What does that sound like? They said to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. He said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who were crucified also reviled him in the same way. Lord Jesus, literally bleeding to death, on a cross endures abject mockery from all those around him. I mean, it's a cruel thing to mock a person, right? In any circumstance, in any situation. But to mock a human being who is bleeding to death in front of you, that's almost inhuman, isn't it? They had made him such an object of their hatred that he was worse than a worm. That the only thing he was worth is squashing. And not only that, they mocked his faith, didn't they? Sound like Psalm 22? Oh, he trusted in God. Let God save him. Let his God come down and get him off of this cross. It was all a big joke. And this is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh dying for the sins of the world. 
And through his eyes, it looked like pure mockery all around, exactly what we saw in Psalm 22. He physically had reached his limits. The physicality of the cross is almost unimaginable. It is so far beyond anything David could have ever possibly experienced. Verse 27 through 31, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him. Saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him. They took a reed and they struck him on the head. When they mocked him, they stripped him of his robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. They got to the place of crucifixion. They nailed his wrists and his feet to the cross and raised the cross to fall into its place. And as our Lord hung on that cross that day, his body was ravaged. The physical pain is unimaginable. Isaiah 52 tells us, verse 14, Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the child of mankind. Isaiah prophesied what that would look like. And no doubt that's exactly what it looked like. Almost hard to even recognize him as a human being. Truly, Jesus could say of himself, I am a worm and not a man. There's nothing left of me. But a little bit to be squashed. It's not just the mockery and the physical abuse on the cross, but it's the emotional trauma had to have been outrageous. The Son of God dying for the very ones who were inflicting this torture upon him. He feels completely alone. His disciples had scattered, and there he hung between two thieves with an angry mob all around. But again, that wasn't his worst problem. What is his worst problem? It came out in the fourth thing he said on the cross. My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? See, if the physical, the emotional, the mockery, the enemies, if all that wasn't bad enough, the loneliness, he too looked up. And for the first time, in all of his eternal existence, felt distance from the Father. Why? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of exactly what Psalm 22 says. He is quoting that psalm and identifying himself with it. Why would the eternal Father distance himself from the eternal Son? The answer is quite clear and quite simple. Because in those moments on the cross, the very Son of God had taken upon Himself the sins of the world. My sin, your sin, the sins of the world. Credited to His account. David said, in those moments, He who knew no sin became sin for us. And because in those moments... He took on our sin. The Father turns and distances Himself from the Son. And for the first time, in unimaginable mystery, the Son of God can't feel the presence of the Father. In fact, feels forsaken like David did. How is that possible? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I just know it's what happened. The worst agony of the cross was not the physical, the emotional, the loneliness, the enemies. It was the break in that eternal fellowship with His Father. It was devastating to the Lord Jesus on the cross. And it happened because of our sin. Because He took from you what belonged to you. Because He took from me what I fully deserved to pay for myself. And chose to endure 
on my behalf. He chose to taste what hell would be like for me. To taste what it would feel like to be completely abandoned and distant, cut off from God forever. To taste what it would feel like to be the recipient of the full wrath of God's eternal wrath for my sin. He tasted that so I would never have to taste it. And so you would never have to taste it. And that's what's happening on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But then the turning point arrives, verse 21. You have rescued me. You have heard me. At some moment at the end of his physical endurance on the cross, at some moment in that mysterious season, his relationship with the Father is restored. And that's what happens at the end of verse 21. Just like it did for David in a physical sense, it does for the Lord Jesus on the cross. He is enduring the pain for our sin, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Father's face turns back toward the Son. And He feels the warm embrace of His Father once again. You have heard me! He cries in His heart. And His wailing turns to worship. His agony turns into ecstasy. In that moment, His grief is is surpassed because the silence of God is lifted. And the Father assures him of his acceptance of his offering for sin. It's in those moments that the Father lets him know, Son, it's good. Your offering is complete and I've accepted it. All that's left is for you to breathe your last breath. But I'm with you. And the sacrifice is good. And the end of the wailing turns into worship. And we see in that last part what we have absolutely no time to walk through. But let me just give it to you this way. That last section is what happens in the heart of our Lord Jesus between when the Father turns His face back toward Him and He knows that the Father has heard Him and the moment that He dies. He looks down throughout the ages of history yet to be written. And he sees his gospel based on the sacrifice that he's making going out first to the Jewish people, then to the Gentiles, and then to the ends of the world. To generations, he says at the end, that are not even born yet. He looks throughout the aeons of history that have not yet been written and he understands what his sacrifice is purchasing and what is exactly going to take place. The gospel is going to go out to the Jews first. We see that in those first couple of verses. He talks about brothers. He talks about the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Israel. He's going to praise with them in the congregation. And then in verses 25 through 26, he talks about a great congregation, those who fear him and those who seek him. Speaking of the Gentiles who would be hearing the gospel and believe. Then in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. It's really an envisioning in his mind of Acts 1.8 what the gospel is going to do. It's going to go to Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then it's going to go where? To the ends of the earth. And he even sees into the, to the future beyond his return when he's going to come back, and God's rule is going to exist over all things. And everything that was lost in the fall is going to be restored. He sees the effect of what his death is accomplishing. And his heart bursts forth in worship. What a fascinating psalm. What a fascinating psalm. It helps us to understand what's life, what life is like through human eyes when all of our circumstances seem hopeless. And it gives us some hope in those moments. And it gives us some tools for how we should battle against the hopelessness that sometimes fills our heart. 
But it's a psalm that helps us to understand no matter how hard we battle on our own, we never win the victory by ourselves because the psalm thrusts us to our Lord Jesus Christ who has felt every pain we've ever felt, who's felt every moment of hopelessness that we could ever imagine. He endured it on the cross himself. So he knows and so he identifies and so he feels what you feel. And he's a savior who died for your sins. And even though he may not rescue us the way we want him to rescue us and the time frame in which we want him to rescue us, because of what he's done on the cross, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day he will make everything right. He will make everything right because he's the Savior who's died in our place. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you even as we just sort of skim the edge of what we could explore here in this psalm, we absolutely are blown away by thinking about what the cross must have looked like through your eyes. What it must have been like to be you, the perfect sinless one, to be surrounded by enemies and brutally destroyed physically, emotionally wrecked, all alone, relentlessly mocked, and even separated from your Father, wondering if you've been forsaken for a moment. Oh, in some ways, each of us knows how those things feel, but we don't know it like you know it. And we're thankful that you know it. Because you then become for us a resource when we feel it. When we wail in the midst of our pain, we can wail to a Savior who's been there and done that. Who is not without understanding how we feel, but who has felt it just the same. A Savior who has given his own life and shed his own blood, tasted the death that we deserved in our place. Who even though we don't always feel it, is always near to us. And even though we sometimes wonder if you're listening, we know like David that you hear us. And so God, I pray for my friends who have come this morning, particularly for those who came into this place this morning with the waves of life just crashing around them, physically hurting, emotionally wrecked, crying out to you and not getting the answers, wondering if they've been forsaken. Lord Jesus, turn their eyes toward you this morning. Let them know in the recesses of their hearts that you have heard them, that you are near to them, and that you are holy. And that one day you'll make it all right. Strengthen them, encourage them as they gaze upon you. For those who don't know you, Jesus, I pray they'd see you this morning in this psalm dying for their sin. And would run to you and place their trust in you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.